Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man, a podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan speaks with singer-songwriter John Mark McMillan. You may know him from his song, How He Loves. And in this conversation, they speak about his earliest experience of the presence of God, his primary influence on songwriting, the false division of sacred and secular, and Christianity as a set of practices more than a set of beliefs. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man. We're hanging out in John Mark Millen's studio, where the magic happens, yes. where hopes and dreams are born and realized. What? A, and we're just here being tall together, like we do, <laughs> in our uh, kind of uh, lumbering. Yep. <laughs> Man, thank you so much for letting us let me be here in your studio. This is so wonderful. Oh yeah, thank you. So this appreciate is, the opportunity. I, I love using it every chance I get. I love the space, and um, yeah, this is going to be fun. We've already been hung, hanging out for a couple hours, and of course, um, we did an event together last week called Reunion, which was great. So, um, I, you know, I'd already said I feel like the conversation that we've had today has been so, so rich. We do this thing whenever we get together; it tends to be like a marathon, three to four hour <laughs> kind does. of. Yeah, we get into a lot of things. I know it. I know. But I think we, you know, we come kind of from similar places, totally. and then have been also, I think, parallel tracks, kind of yep. moving in the same kind of direction, whatever, yep. what, wherever it is that we're going. Yep, totally. Um, and I would love to talk a little bit about where we're going, but I thought it'd be a good place to start, not trying to go all Krista Tippett, but um, knowing something of the culture and the world in which you grew up, I'm curious about when was the first time that you can recall consciously being aware of the presence of God? Oh, man. Consciously. I was at a church meeting. It's like a camp. And... Uh, Actually, my good friend Jonathan Helser. Have you ever met Jonathan? We've actually before? never met. He's um, I've known him for a long time. He's another Carolina guy, so mm-hmm. I mean, just I've known him for maybe twenty years. But um, he, his dad, used to go through have this sort of circuit. He's a singer and a ministry guy, and he would come through um, Charlotte because he's up in Greensboro or up in near Greensboro. Anyway, he um he came through and was doing um worship at our kids camp at uh the church that I went to and I was probably um oh, man, I could have been 8 or 10 years old, something like that. Definitely too young to be way into girls, but not unaware. <laughs> right. Right? Um so <laughs> Um, I hadn't crossed over into like the <laughs> obsession, uh, at that point, but I was, so, but I don't know exactly when it was, but it was around that time. So pre, pre, preteen, right. And, um, I was with my friends and I was excited because I got to see a bunch of my friends and I'm a pretty extroverted person. I like to hang. I like being with people, you know, so. I loved the church camps because I just got to be with my friends constantly, you know. But I remember being in this meeting and we were goofing off and maybe um, making fun of how some of the others were maybe too into what was going on. They were sitting up on clapping and they were dancing and getting into it. And me and my friends were just like, ah, you know, how sometimes guys can be, 
you know, but before I knew it, like I was crying. I had no idea why. Hmm. And the weird thing was, and this is why I feel like it was God is because it was out of the blue. And this is not the thing I would in that moment want to be doing in front of my cool friends. Sure. You know, and so like I literally started crying. I was like, I, I mean, one minute I was, you know, and it wasn't because of someone was preaching or talking about something that touched me in an intellectual way, you know. I don't know that I even understood what was, you know, happening. And I think it was during the worship. I wasn't even paying attention to the words. Something just grabbed a hold of me. And I remember start, I started crying, but I wasn't sad. I was like, and this is so weird. I really didn't know what was going on. I realized this is God. Something is happening to me. And I'm connecting to something beyond myself, you know. And so my friends thought I was not cool after that. Huh. Um, we didn't, we, I mean, we were, we were still friends, but it was not, you know, all of a sudden it went from hangout to like something else, you know. Um, and so that's the first time I remember f- consciously feeling the presence of God was in that moment. And, it, and so honestly, I mean, that was during music, during worship, during, you know. And so, I've I've pursued that feeling through music mm. ever since that day, mm. you know, and um, whatever God was doing that caused the dopamine to, you know, fire in my brain in that moment, I've pursued that thing. You it's know? so interesting that that was that that's the moment that you think of that it was tender and vulnerable and uncool to your friends. Totally, you know? yeah, because <laughs> I do think there's such a there is such a tender thing. In your music, like I mean, uh, do, do you still recognize that that little boy? Is he still alive? Like, oh yeah, that, he's still there. Totally, and it's 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 actually really difficult. But when I go to the place to write those songs, I literally go to that place. Mm. Not that I I don't relive the church or relive that moment, but the way I felt, um, I I go to that place, and it's really to be honest. Sometimes it's really hard and. Um, it wrecks my day sometimes because yeah. it. I really get into that emotional place. I remember some of my favorite songs like Love You Swore, mm-hmm. um, Enemy Love. Um, a lot of those songs like were very emotional moments for me when I wrote those songs. And um, you know, I remember leaving after writing those songs and thinking, like, I don't think I can do anything mm. for the rest of this day that's going um, <laughs> gonna, to, uh, you know... Um, I'm not going to get anything done yeah, the rest of the day. It's you know, and it's even such a fragile kind of reality. Yeah, totally, it is. And you just and and even going home and you and I don't know that it's even healthy all the time. It's not a place I can live. That that sort of uber vulnerability. I love it, but like sometimes I get there in a negative way, or not even negative way. I just sort of you have like an emotional payload you know and once it sort of explodes you're sort of left with the with the aftermath you know what i mean almost like uh you get in an argument with a friend or you know i don't know sometimes or it may just be like i just get deep in myself sometimes and um that's but you know what honestly most of the time it's good though so i i i guess um it takes a lot out of me is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like oftentimes it's good. I leave that place feeling very fulfilled. Mm-hmm. In fact, I feel like I, 
before I had kids, I went there even more, you know, and I, I think mm-hmm. later on, like, I didn't call it this, but I actually think what it was is I was learning a level of contemplation mm-hmm. and awareness of myself, but then also an awareness of how I was connected to the outside of myself. Mm. If that makes sense, totally. like I used to love to write songs on the porch late at night mm. because the porch was an element of safety. You know, I was in my space and I could kind of sing, you know, late enough. I wouldn't scream, but people couldn't hear me. So it was like there needs to be a level of isolation where I can be free to explore. Yeah. Um, but then I loved being on the porch because I felt connected to the rest of the world. You know, it was like the cars would drive by. I would hear the train in the distance. Like I was sort of on the edge of myself looking out into the world. And I always had great moments like that, um, in, in that space. Um, but I, I, it took me a long time to define it or figure out exactly what I was doing, but it was, I would get in a moment and make myself, make myself vulnerable to the moment and uh, sort of ask myself, what is happening? How do I feel? And then uh, just sort of experience the moment, you know, and I feel like I was maybe exploring a level of contemplation, you know, um, I didn't call it that back then. And I don't even know that I fully understand that now, but I feel like those moments really defined my life in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Um, When I wrote songs in those moments, you know, those songs seem to be the songs that touched people. As when I wrote songs from a more intellectual yeah. platform, platform is that the right from a, you know if there's always a leaping off point when you're sure. writing a song, that's always the hard part. It's like how do I jump into a song? And whenever I jump from an intellectual idea, um, I don't think it connects. Is when I jump from a more emotional or um, primal yeah. kind of place. Yeah, you know, um, and I think I learned that. On my porch. I think it all goes back to that feeling I felt. So in a song, I'm always, pers- I'm often pursuing that feeling that I had when I was a kid, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. Um, I always want whatever words are coming out of my mouth, whatever chord I'm playing, I want to feel that way. Yeah. And when I find that, it's it's magic. Yeah. And when I can hold on to it, it's, um, it's gold. But I totally get you in terms of like, chasing that particular feeling because yeah. it's this is always the touchstone for me when i was um when i was working on my first book prototype i was writing a chapter called resurrection and i'd written the whole chapter but it felt very cerebral and like it just it just it just felt like it wasn't clicking it just yep. it was much more head than it was coming from gut mm-hmm. or heart and i remember i went to bed that night and i had this all night i dreamed about my grandparents who lived at the old Church of God campground on Wilkinson Boulevard, yep. where I went to youth camp, had all my first experiences with the presence mm-hmm. of God. Um, they lived their lives there. And it's like all my life, that place, there's such a tenderness there. And of course, they're gone. Um, the place is gone. And I remember it was just one of those times, like when I woke up from that dream, there was such an ache. I mean, I was I was crying because yeah. I so I felt like I was in that place and got taken out of it. Yeah, and it was so tender; it left me mm. so exposed. And, and I don't even know what if, if this was a conscious decision, but I just felt like I had to go and write. And when I what I wrote that day and what came out of that felt so special. It's like every, but I think that was the first time I recognized. I'm I'm sure it was there before, but that dynamic where because yeah. because from that moment forward. Whenever I would create something, write something, I actually think to myself, okay, 
I've got to get, I've got to write from the ache. I've got to find yep. the ache again, which yeah. is hard to do. Sometimes it feels like, you know, like you're like, you're exactly putting a needle in your arm, like trying to, like, you can't always get <laughs> yes. there, but I, but that's where I got to go is, is where does the ache come from? I totally. got to create from that place. Yep. And that's what I think I mean about some of the negative, cause it's a positive thing overall, but some of the negative things, sometimes you dig so deep, you're sort of like, whoo, yeah. and you leave so, a little bit sore maybe, mm-hmm. you know, um, or emotionally sort of over <laughs> you know what i mean sort of um emotionally spent yeah you know i don't know if you ever feel that way but oh for sure um it, you need a certain amount of insulation it feels like just yeah. to be alive right like, totally. i don't know how to because ideally i'd aspire to that like, there's yeah. part of me thinks well yeah you need to be that kind that vulnerable all the time but i don't think you can take that all the yeah. time because it's like you're too you're you're too vulnerable then to all the elements like yeah. when you're in that place everything yes. affects you in a really deep way. And I don't yep. know how to stay in that space all yeah. the time or that we're supposed to. And it's hard too, because as we're both writers, you know, um, we both, you know, we pursue that vulnerability, that aching vulnerability, and then we express it. And then you put it out there. And then once you put it out there, what do people do? They just totally tear it apart. Right. You know, and I'm like, yes. And so it took it took me a while to learn how to be okay with that, you know, is sort of have to separate myself. So I think mm-hmm. there is that insulation has to happen at some point. Because mm-hmm. if if I continue to be so connected to it, it'd be hard even to want to put it out, mm-hmm. you know. But there does have to be that moment where you're like, okay, I've in this moment now, I got to step back and let it be, mm-hmm. you know, um, what it's going to be, and not take it too personally if people don't fully connect with it mm-hmm. it's it really is almost like it's like now here now here's this other little creature this life form that like yep. takes on a life of its own totally it's gonna go where it's gonna go do what it's gonna do yep. and you recognize it but it's not it's it's not quite attached in the same yep. way totally yeah That's maybe so it's like kids you know you want the best for them but then at a point my kids are still pretty young at a point you have to be like well it's your life Mm-hmm. And I hope I taught you well, and I'm here for you if you need mm-hmm. me. But yeah. I'm no longer in control of who you're gonna be. Yeah. But that, but it ha- you know, and you let them. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's uh-huh. kind of like that, a little bit. You know. But it's been yeah. Okay, I'm I'm thinking particularly right now yeah. of just and there have been tons of these moments. But when I've been with you, like after a show and hearing other people talk to you, it's like give that sense of like, you know, once once a song is out there. It means something different to, to, to everybody who hears it. You know, it's it's it, it, it's it's just I don't know. It's so interesting to me. I'm fascinated by the way that art, you know, it just wherever a person is, and I, I, the common thread I think is if it's if it's written from a deep place, it will connect with people in a deep place. Yep. But those will be different deep places. Totally, the same thing can mean something yep. completely different. Totally, on the person's context and experience and. Yep, I totally agree. And people approach songs for different reasons, you know, and um, and then the song over time changes meaning. And I think in church, I mean, maybe it's just because I experience the criticism. I mean, I'm used to it, and it's sort of like it's the job, sure. right? So it's not like I, I don't hate it in the sense I don't resent it. It's just sort of the job, part of the job. But so I, I get frustrated with a lot of the criticism that comes from the church is um, they want to criticize why you wrote the song. Mm. You know, they want like, what did the writer mean? I was reading about, you know, Joel Houston wrote that song recently, the, um, you know, where he mentioned evolution and yeah. someone wrote this whole thing. What does the writer mean when he, it's like, 
Well, it actually doesn't matter that right. much. Like if you if you're a person who doesn't believe in human evolution, it doesn't have to mean that to you. Yeah. And are you afraid that because he might have meant that when he wrote it? He's like, what does he mean when he wrote this? It actually mm-hmm. doesn't matter. It may matter in a broader context, like what kind of songs are we writing as a whole. But as far as um, what you do with the song, I don't know that it matters if if the song does what you need it to do and says what you need it to say, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it matters what the intent of the writer. That doesn't make me a very popular person. People don't want to think of it that way. I think people want to feel totally connected to the right. writer. Right. But I don't know that that's even really possible. Like, I mean, maybe yeah. that's the illusion. Yeah. You know, it's like when you're watching TV, the illusion is that that stuff is really mm-hmm. happening. But it's not. And maybe when you hear a song, the illusion is that you and the writer are totally connected. Mm-hmm. But at the end, what really matters is, does the song do what you need it to do, I think. Yeah, and I, I so you agree. Know? I mean, my, my favorite story about that in terms of like author intent, I think about this all the time now for some reason, but I was so influenced by Stanley Harwas at Duke, and there's a lot of reason I went there. And I remember once he was giving a lecture, because he was talking about people's need to do that with scripture to understand what the writer yep. was meaning. And he said in his very Hauerwas way, I won't attempt his Texas accent, though I do that for fun sometimes. But Hauerwas said, if the Apostle Paul were here right now and stood up and tried to tell us what he meant when he was writing Corinthians, I'd tell him to to shut the hell up and sit the hell down. <laughs> it doesn't matter what he meant when he wrote Corinthians. The text belongs to the church. Yeah. And he's talking about that like in the church context, but I've thought about yeah. that so much about like creativity in general. It's like yeah, yeah. once it's out there, yeah. it belongs to whoever receives it. Yeah, like, totally. So, but, but, but the idea that even with scripture, like who cares what they meant? It exists yep. as a thing now. Totally. You know? Yep. And I think all art kind of exists in that way. Totally. Man. Who were yep. the song? Who were the song? You were, of course... You're one of my favorite songwriters all time. Oh hands man, down. thank you. Very true. Gosh, like, thank you so much. Who are the songwriters that influenced you most? Um, on that note, at different points in my life, I think Springsteen was probably the most important to me because I think it was the I is probably a, over a decade ago. Oh gosh, probably longer than that. Um, I've, I realized like I need to imitate somebody. Mm. I was like, I need to have somebody to imitate. Um, because sort of I realized um, that art, you pick up art the way you pick up language is you learn from your parents. Mm-hmm. And at first you learn by copying your parents. Then as you get older, you start to bring your own inflection into it. And then all of a sudden the language is yours. You know, but we all start by copying. And I realized like I need somebody that I can copy. And so Springsteen and Dylan became those for me. In that moment, you know, and so I, it's the first time I dug really dove into another writer. Um, and so I think before that, like maybe my, f- the first writers I tried to imitate were like the Counting Crows mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there's, uh, Kevin Prosh was a worship oh, yeah. leader. He was, he's, he may have been one of the most influential on me early, mm-hmm. early on and, um, he, but interesting enough, he actually is in that Dylan Springsteen vein in a lot of ways. Oh, and yeah, I could see that. There were rumors that he and Bob Dylan were buddies and may have worked together at some point, and they knew a lot of the same people. Wow. But he's definitely in that sort of um, Americana folk prophetic vein. Um, but Kevin was really the one who made me want to be a worship leader. And then Martin Smith was sort of the next 
Um, which is interesting because Martin is actually heavily influenced by Kevin Prosh. Okay. Um, and and so uh, those were sort of early on, but then as a writer, um, when I felt like okay, it's time to like really like dig in and try and figure out who I am as a writer, Springsteen and Dylan became the ones I really sort of dug in, you know, and it's like all right, I tried to begin to imitate them, you know. Um, imitate them as they imitate <laughs> the music, you yes, know, like yes. they're sort of like my uh, rock and roll apostles, I guess, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, gosh, but over the years, man, I I listened to a ton of music. Um, gosh, so influence really depends on the era in a lot of ways. That makes but sense. But those are probably the strong, the the larger, you know, they probably occupy the most space on that influence shelf i guess i hear a lot of i hear a lot of springsteen in you i always i always make that association i mean in a good way not not in wooden copy but in terms yeah, of yeah. that kind of his approach to the craft it's it's curious to me and to me feels like such a natural transition even as you name you know talk about dylan springsteen and kevin prosh and martin smith from delirious mm-hmm. you know well i'll put it this way so i've heard you live surely at least three or four times in the last two years yeah and it's been interesting because it's like you know once was rocket town in nashville which of course michael w smith's kind of a christian club once mm-hmm. was definitely like uh more of a, a bar pub venue somewhere then we're at reunion a couple of weeks ago kind of uh a, a christian conference but that's something real fascinating to me about the journey these days is yep. that you're uh you're in theaters you're in clubs you're still in church spaces yeah what has that been like for you? Like, especially being on the road these days when you're moving in and out of those kind of those intersections so much, like what's, what's that meant for your journey musically and personally? Sure. Well, it's been really an interesting last few years because early on I was heavily connected to church. And the thing is I'm not angry at church. Um, or I don't have a problem playing the church space. I just realized a while back that I feel like I need to, own the thing that it is that I'm doing you know and too often it's like I can't lean on the church or big church or big worship movements because when you if I lean too much on any movement they own my platform they own my voice Mm -hmm. you know and um and not even that that's the worst thing in the world but I just felt from experiences I had early on in church that I needed to own it you know I'm the church I grew up in and um, the movement I was associated with early on, you know, there's some falling out. And I realized that a lot of the people who thought they had ownership in this thing didn't necessarily have ownership. And they gave a lot of their lives to it. And that's not the worst thing in the world in the sense that everything you give as unto the Lord, right? So, But I realized, like, I can't depend on any of these movements because at the end of the day, it's the people at the top of the hierarchy that, you know, benefit in the end, you know, and I think they're all good people. Like, I don't want to sound like I don't think the world of a lot of these people who are at the top, but you know, when the crap hits the fan, everything has an arc. Sure. And I think in church, we just assume, you know, when there's a big church movement, oh, this is just going to go up and up and up until the Lord comes back and they're going to be at the right hand of God or something, right? <laughs> it's right. like, but I've been around long enough to see the arc in in multiple sort of movements. And I'm like, there is an arc. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, what? where do I belong at the end of that arc? Mm, yeah. And if you're not 
sitting in the, if you're not sitting on the throne, you know, everyone else dissipates and hopefully they had a good experience. Hopefully they received a lot from the movement, but at the end, the only people, that sounds really negative. But at the end of it, you know, like it's the people, you know, sitting on the top that, um, ultimately benefit from it long term. Mm And once again, like it's fine to be a part of something for a short period of time where you give a lot of yourself because it's a good thing, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I just felt like what I was called to do and called to say, I had to steward it in a way where I could try to own it myself. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it, I think people early or maybe at one point, at some point, feel like I was sort of um, pushing away mm-hmm. from church. But I don't know that I was as much pushing out into the general market. Um, like, I don't think I was just trying to be cool. I just realized like, I, if, um, if I'm going to own this thing, it has to work on my terms, Mm. you know? And so the clubs and the theaters became like my way of doing that. So if, you know, if I said something that offended all the church people, you know, then the movement, if the movements went away, Mm -hmm. it's like, um, I still own this part of what I do, you know? And so it wasn't, um, that I was rebelling, sure. <laughs> you know, necessarily against church culture, even though I've not always um, loved sort of the greater church culture um, in, d- in different streams. But um, for me, it was more just trying to build something that I could own, yeah. you know, and then I could lend it to the church if they wanted it. But then at the end of the day, maybe it would come back to me. Yeah. But I felt like I've had things to say that were not always... Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. Because looking back, it's not like I've said things that are that offensive in True. my music, but I've done them in ways that didn't always fit. Yeah. You know? And, and if, a lot of things are very human. If not offensive, it's yeah, more human than totally. you get in worship music. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So for me, that's so it's been great doing the theaters, the clubs, mm. and being able to be a part of that. You know, we play a lot of colleges, and we still play churches, you know? Um, we, just, I, we just don't lean on the churches or depend on them necessarily. Yeah. This um, this might be sort of an impossible question because I feel like it caused you to speculate. But a, I would say, well, for one, it's one of the things I love most about what you've done is I thought you've so carved out your own unique space and you very much have done it your way. And the fact that it's not been contingent on a particular system or structure, that's one of the things I think is so beautiful and so pure about it. Uh, and you might not even narrate this the same way. And I'm trying, I will get this to the form of a question, but I'm thinking like from afar, it seems like, okay, so you had us, some of the songs that caught on early on that churches were singing, they get a certain kind of success. Um, you've been able to experiment now, like do a lot of things. If there's somebody coming up who is 20, 22 and John Mark McMillan is there, Bruce Springsteen, like the singer songwriter they'd want to like to, to emulate or whatever. Do you think it's possible in kind of the world as it's becoming now that a person like, I'm, I'm like out of the gate could move in and out of those kind of spaces. Or do you see it more like, you know, developing a certain kind of rapport and connection in this one space made it possible then to branch out. Do you know totally. what I mean? Yep. Well, one thing I've learned about everyone who sort of made it, everyone I know personally 
has made it in music or worship or um, let's just say the greater music industry, you know, which could include any sort of genre or category. But they've always had a th- a thing that sort of um, they've one always had a, an opportunity to get their foot in the door, mm. and then number two, when they got their foot in the door, they were able to back it up with you know um, with with what they did, you know, mm-hmm. so it's sort of like they talk about you have to have breaks in the music industry, but you also have to bring when that break happens, you also have to be able to support it. Mm. You know, um, I don't know if I'm making sense here. I guess it's sort of like um, you get a certain number of good pitches. Mm. Right. And I have a friend who used to use the baseball analogy. He's like, you're going to get a certain number of good pitches you know, so you um, you can't decide how many of those or when they happen, but you got to be ready to hit them mm. when they come. You know, and so I guess what I'm saying is the pitches are opportunities. You can't determine what those opportunities are. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of from God, right? You know, and you don't know when you're going to get your right pitch, but you got to be ready to hit it when it comes. Mm. You know, and so I feel like the people who've been successful all were able to get their foot in the door and then able to sustain it. Yeah. You know, um, and so I think we early on got our foot in the door and I was like not totally able to sustain it. And I had to work really hard to back up what I to <laughs> had to work really hard to create something that I thought supported what we the opportunities that we received. Mm-hmm. You know, I lost my voice a lot. I wasn't I still like struggle as a vocalist sometimes, you know, I had to take vocal classes. I had to work really hard. But I guess my point is that um, everybody still needs that opportunity, and it's hard to know what it is. For some people, it's a big tour. For some people, they get their song in a movie. Some people might write a big song for another artist, you know. It's like everybody needs that, but then when that happens, they also need to be prepared to um, sustain their, the, the opportunities that come from that opportunity. Does that make sense? No, it makes so much sense. So I think, man, what was the question exactly? What If they wanted to do, what's really hard for people to do what I'm doing, I, I think without that opportunity, my opportunity was unique in, I mean, it's a string of opportunities. Yeah. It's a string of doors you know, that I got to walk through. So I think what people can do is, I think it's important that people know who they are yeah. and know what they want to do and then be prepared when the opportunity presents itself, you know, so the How We Love song was really huge. It's interesting, though, it took years before that song. Like, I wrote it in the early 2000s, and it wasn't till like, 2009 or 2010 that that became a popular song. So I don't think I realized it was, it was that long. It might have been eight years from the time I wrote it, you know, and so during that time, we were um, just doing our thing, you know, and didn't necessarily expect any major success. And then that song blew up and people came back to me, um, you know, to hear what else I was doing. And it was a great opportunity. It's a great season for me. The medicine record had just came out. I think people came to me for the How We Love song and then they got the medicine record. Oh, yeah. Which wow. was like not full of corporate worship, but sure. it was like a worshipful um, sort of conversation I think a lot of people hadn't experienced before. And um, I don't know if I'm answering your question oh, very totally, well. Oh, <laughs> totally, absolutely, you are. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious now, like, because I, 
if this happens both ways or one way more than the other, I mean, like, on the one hand, I feel like one of the things I love about what you've done with the band, you guys are, I mean, you you put on a killer, like a legit bonafide rock and roll show. Like, it's great rock and roll. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, especially like with the last record, I feel like, you know, continuing to branch out some artistically. I'm curious if, like, if there are people who show up for the rock and roll and kind of endure the the songs that feel more like corporate worship or if they've got or if it kind of works the other way around now that people like kind of well we'll hang through the rock and roll because we can't wait to sing how we look like <laughs> yeah yeah did, did both of those things happen we yeah i think early on um especially um people only knew the how we love song and i think a lot of times they would show up thinking it's going to be a more uh conventional worship service you know, and then we come out of the gates with, you know, uh, Reckoning Day or, mm-hmm. you know, songs that are not necessarily um, songs that you wouldn't necessarily hear or play in church, you know, on Sunday morning. And so I think it took a while for people to realize, like, okay, John Mark is not doing this thing. But at the same time, I feel like we always try and take people on a journey. And we always end in a very worshipful space. Yeah. And so I feel like if people, people, I think it took people a while to to realize I wasn't just trying to do uh, worship services, mm-hmm. but that there was something very intentionally worshipful about what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So I do think some people were maybe confused. And we did used to have those crowds where it's like, oh man, this is a Howie Loves crowd. They literally uh, don't care about anything else or uh, know any other songs. And I can tell, like, it's usually a church and the pastor just, um, you know, promoted the show back when Howie Loves was at its height. They promoted the show by saying, the writer of Howie Loves, and I think they showed up thinking they were going to get one thing, and they got something else. But I feel like we've done a good job of, in the recent years of stewarding that, Mm -hmm. you know, where I think people, um, we can keep them entertained if they're not... um, Mm -hmm. If they're not sure, if it doesn't immediately feel like what they thought they signed up for, I think we keep them entertained to the point where they get what they wanted mm-hmm. towards the end. And then I think they'll look back and see that like well, we were taking them on a journey the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've gotten better at doing that over the past years. you know. Um, but also I feel like our audience has grown. Um, early on, they only knew a couple of songs. Mm-hmm. But now like we did... like. Most nights we're singing Death and Reverse and Magic Mirror, which I feel like are deep cuts on the new record. Sure. And I'd take my in-ears out, and I was like, everybody is singing these songs. Wow. I was like, how do they even know these? Yeah. Um, you know, like these are there's a lot of words, you know? And um, so I, I feel like our audience has connected to more than just the worship songs. Yeah. And they've they've grown to expect um uh, a variety mm-hmm. from us now, you know. This um, this might be like a super random question, but like I know I very much experience the shows as as an integrated whole. But I'm curious for you in performing, like, do you on an interior level, do you find that you go that you're kind of in a different place when you're doing Mercury and Lightning than like Future Past, or is it now? Now is it all like is it all one thing for you? Well, I don't know. I think. Gosh, I think it's some nights it's different. I mean, there are some nights where, um, you know, from the beginning, I feel that, um, 
the you know the dopamine kick from the that I think comes from the presence of you know I I believe comes from the presence of God like I I'm in the moment I'm like I am in a worshipful place Mm -hmm. from the moment I walk out you know and they're just different um, expressions of that then there's some nights where different songs feel that way and then there are some times where it's definitely like okay something has changed we've moved into this more worshipful sort of moment and uh, the whole atmosphere changes in that moment and i think a lot of that has to come comes from the audience mm. and i think this is an interesting thing and i know guys or guys i say guys it's terrible but people women and men who do this for a living and do it really well like they learn to read the personality of a crowd every crowd has a different personality and the people who do it the best like can read the personality of the crowd and figure out the best way to project to that specific crowd of people and man the people who do it the best are like um i look up to them um but you know so sometimes i can tell like there's you know Susie on the second row who's just totally not getting into the you know i'm singing gods of american success Mm -hmm. you know but then maybe i can there's a moment or there's a musical break i can bring it back into why we're singing this song Mm -hmm. you know um, or maybe we can just entertain them long enough to get to where they want to go. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it's just—it's different every night. But I do—I think in theory, in theory, I want to at least act like um, there's no difference in the two. Yeah, you know, I—I th- I think there probably is a little bit of a difference, but I think most of what we would say, this is worship, this is not, is a cultural idea. Mm-hmm, sure. I think most of it is that. There's, there might be a little bit of a difference um, in the sense of the way you set a song up or the way a song um, is is created. Uh, some songs are easier or lend themselves more to the crowd singing. Mm-hmm. gives them more of a participatory, you know, um, an opportunity to participate. Um I think outside of church, people dance more. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know? And so a lot of, like, you go to a lot of shows, like, it's not, the people don't have to sing along to engage. Oh. They're bodily engaged. But in church, I think uh, dancing <laughs> is less common because there's a physical aspect to it, you know, maybe a, um, I hate to say a sexual aspect to it. I mean, you know, people, it's... Someone's dancing a little bit too, getting too into it. Maybe we need to shut that down, you know? And so I think we, in church music, we tend to, um, we tend to write more from a vocal perspective, mm. like, because we feel like the only way for people yeah. to engage is to sing along. Mm. As outside of sort of a church scenario, people can engage in all sorts of different ways. Um, and I, I like it in church when people do engage in all the sure. different ways, you know. And Which so. says a lot, though, about like church culture and I think evangelical culture in particular, like it's so head oriented yep. that, that, that the first touchstone would, it's just interesting that it would be outside the church that the first response would be a bodily one. That yes. It could be a place of bodily totally. connection to music yeah. first. And man, it's, it's really interesting. I would love to read an in depth study. Because like there are things that happen. I know already. Like I've seen TED talks and read about what happens to your brain when you sing along with other people. Mm-hmm. And there's a physical. Did you say physiological, mm-hmm. or a f- physic physiological or a physical 
um, thing that happens in your body when you sing along and you hear someone singing with you. Mm. There's something that happens. Um, there are different chemicals that are released in your brain, um, and those chemicals actually cause you to be... Have you read any of these studies? or uh, Only from afar. But they actually cause um, you to be more open to one another. Mm. Feelings of fellowship. Um, uh, you, you become more interested in the people around you and more willing to have conversation with those people. So um, there's a TED Talk. I, I wish I... Maybe I can dig up a link later, but... There's in Australia. There's a lady who did um, a singing club, and she talked about all the things that happen in your brain when you sing together. And they just sang songs. I don't even know. I mean, it was people from all sort of faith backgrounds. They're singing Beatles songs and pop songs and all sorts of songs. And really, they would just get together and sing. And she talked about all the things that happen in this community. Um, people who didn't have jobs got jobs. Wow. There were people who got married. They didn't know each other. And they came together and sing together. She had marriages that happened. Because there is something that happens oh. in your body when you sing with other people. And this is proven scientifically. So interesting. This scientifically. And so I, I do think that there's... I would, love, I would love to see a study about what happens to people who dance, about what happens to people who engage bodily, vocally, with other people in these environments. Because there's... If you, it's so... For the longest time, it blew my mind. Like, why... Is the music industry like this billion-dollar industry? Because music, at the end of the day, they're just sounds. Mm -hmm. We make sounds, and people who have no idea what the sounds mean, they can't tell you the difference in a major chord and a minor chord, or why this melody makes them feel a certain way. They're just connected, mm -hmm. you know. And the, and I think we lose it some with the technology, with the phone, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but and I think when we get too heady. And we feel like church is all about talking. I think we miss out on um, we miss out on the reality that like doing things together bodily actually yeah. creates a new space in your brain for other people. Mm, right. Wow. You know. Yes. And I would love to see a study that has to do with church music and why throughout history, mm -hmm. I think almost every faith tradition I can think of has is somehow connected to music. Sure. Has songs. You know. Um, that'd be a fun study. I'd love to oh, read absolutely. something like that. Absolutely. I'm, um, I'm so struck by all that. And just thinking in general about this whole, cause I feel like this, I feel like this is stuff that we talk about a lot is just the, I don't know, j just living at these kind of intersections. I mean, between, yeah. you know, in terms of church and culture, this broader, I mean, a lot of stuff that we talked about, David, I feel like we're always talking about, it's kind of, and I, you know, I feel like I've been having this kind of conversation so much on the podcast because, you know, it, it's just always what I'm talking about in some form or the other, even though I still don't have give good language to it. I feel like we did a little bit before the podcast, just talking in shorthand about how many people we know. It's it's a story of something like pastor, youth pastor, worship leader, whatever, reads a Richard Rohr book. Yep. They go on a certain trajectory asking kinds of questions. And it just it feels like right now in particular, a lot of things are in flux. Um, yep. The event that we just did, Reunion, part of what was so... Uh, wonderful about that to me is that everything that I love about the kind of charismatic culture where we come from, that kind of engagement, it was bodily mm, yep. and people were responding and there was something like kind of guttural about it that was good and right. But all weekend, like through the talks, um, you know, we're able to talk about things like um, white supremacy and racism and 
creation and like all these, just all these things people mm-hmm. are grappling with. Yep. And so I, I'm just curious from your vantage point, uh, because you are somebody who reads and thinks and you know, you're in the music sphere to be sure, but even philosophically or whatever, like where, where is all of that going in terms of yeah, where the yeah. church is going yeah. and where the kinds of people who are listening to your music are, you know, are going and worship culture. Like what do you, what do you feel like's ahead? Oh man, that's a heck of a question. Right. <laughs> I think, um, so I've more and more begun to think of faith as a thing that, um, appears bodily mm. and appears in your physicality uh, or, th- or there's a physical aspect to faith you know so I think about um, my children and I think about my grandmother before she passed away like there are certain things my children cannot understand about God they don't have any context or language for it you know then my grandmother at the end of her life she's a great lady but then in her life, she uh, had dementia, and she got to where she didn't remember my name. She wasn't sure if it was if I was my granddaddy, my cousin, my uncle, or me, or my brother. You know, um, and so uh, I feel like I'm going somewhere with this, though. Yeah, uh, it sure. sounds a little random, but no, I promise you, you I feel go. like I'm going. So I had this thought one day, and Jesus talks about, you know, suffer the children. He talks about have faith like a child. You know, and children. I don't mean to say this in a in a bad way, but children. You know, uh, I. You know, sort of. Um, they're not as smart as adults. <laughs> you know, and so is Jesus saying you need to become as dumb as a child to enter? You know, and I don't think he's saying that. I don't think he's saying we. I'm not saying children are dumb, but I'm saying, is he saying we need to forget everything that we've learned? And I actually think, no, I think he's actually saying, no, faith is another thing. Mm. I think his point is, is not when we say have faith like a child, it's like you need to be as gullible as a child. Yeah. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying, no, faith has nothing to do with your intellectual assent or little to do with it and more to do with the way you offer your physical self up to the world. You know, um, love your neighbor. You know, what does it mean in your daily life to love a neighbor? You know, to have a good feeling or to think good thoughts about the neighbor? Or what? Or is it what you do? You know, talk, uh, faith without works is dead, that whole idea. And I think there's so, there's so much, um, uh, we argue so much about on the sort of intellectual side. And I'm not putting down the intellect. I'm not, I'm not really, I guess what I'm getting at is that I realize this. If faith means to ascribe to a set of facts, mm. then my kids are out of the club. Mm-hmm. My grandmother is out of the club. Yeah. And that is not consistent with who I think Jesus is. Jesus yeah. is constantly welcoming new people into the club. Mm-hmm. And more than that, he's, all, he's always welcoming the people you don't think belong in the club. And, and the fact, I mean, you know, and then, of course, the fact that he says, suffer the children. You need to have faith like a child. You know, to me, that says that um, he's obviously not kicking them out of the club. Yeah. And so if my children are in the club, if my children can't understand and my grandmother can't understand, if they don't have the ability to subscribe to facts, then faith has got to be something besides subscribing to facts. Mm-hmm. But still, I feel like we end up arguing about the facts, and we kick people out of the club based on the facts. 
So I think where I hope that we're going is going to a new place where the facts we subscribe to, they are relevant, they're not irrelevant, but I would love to be able to go to church with people to subscribe to different sets of facts, you know? And it, just, it seems like so often, like, when we're in church, if we don't subscribe to a certain set of things, mm-hmm. you're not welcome, you know? And I think it's getting broader, yeah. you know? You know, there's a whole movement, and I don't know enough about this, but I'm really interested. There's a whole movement of uh, Christian atheist community. I have heard about this. It's super interesting to me. Yeah. So it's atheist people who can't intellectually... Um, subscribe to the existence of God, mm-hmm. but who believe that the principles, and by believing the Bible in another sense, mm-hmm. has a positive impact on their life. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people will have a problem with this, and I know why, so I'm not <laughs> saying they shouldn't, I get it, but there is something really interesting that people are willing to, they can't intellectually sign up, but they see the value in living a certain way, you know? And so, um, I don't know. To me, that speaks... To me, that's evidence that there's something really interesting happening in that sphere. Yeah. Man, I'm not putting my finger right on it. D- does this make sense, though? It makes so much sense. Well, yeah. Here's the thing. I don't think it's something that you can put your finger right on, yeah, which yeah. is why I feel like we fumble when we talk about it, yep. because it's more... It is more intuitive than it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like... I, the thing I feel like this has come up in almost every talk I give these days. I feel like I can't help but talk about yeah, it, yeah. what else I'm talking about. I'm so convinced at this point. I mean, you know, the earliest creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, for example, is so skeletal. Yeah. I mean, that's just it's it's so it's so fundamental. It yep. doesn't have any kind of speculative ideas about really anything beyond the resurrection. Yep. And my sense of it is, like, I think I really am coming to a place where I think that for the earliest Christians. It was not per se beliefs that united them. I mean, I, I certainly think they yeah. would have articulated some basic like Jesus is the yep. Son of God, Jesus mm-hmm. is Lord. Yep. But what it seems to me is that the intention is that they would be united by shared practices, yes. not shared there beliefs. We go. Yes. Which is a monumental shift because yeah. I think the reason that we have forty four thousand denominations yeah. is because like we keep and especially like evangelical culture, we're trying to get to the perfect belief system. We have it exactly right until we came to something different about this, about sanctification or the Holy ghost or the second coming. So then we started a church down the street who then decided, Oh, actually we think we should do baptism a different way. So then they, you know, just keep going because if you're trying to find the perfect belief system, I mean, that's infinite and, and people are always excluded. But if it it is more an idea of like, Hey, come and share these practices with us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I feel like, these last couple of years, I'm always going on and on about the table, uh, even that was it a huge part of my tradition growing up, is this idea that it's, it sure seems like th- th- there could be this space where, okay, what we do is we come together and we have a certain kind of table practice, yep. and that table practice informs the kind of people we want to be and the yep. kind of community that we want to have. And it's not, it's just not cerebral. It's, these are these things that we do together, and that's the stuff that shapes our, our common life. Yep, totally, totally. And there's a muscle memory to it and uh, we create these two different worlds where there's the your brain and then there's your body but we forget your brain and body are one yeah you know and yeah but yeah so i think belief is important sure but i i guess what i'm saying is i'm not i think belief and action are intimately connected yeah and your practices 
in one sense, are your beliefs. Yes. In yes, one sense, your right. practices are your beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, um, oh man, I had something good to say. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> gold though, right there. Yeah. I love like, wow. I mean, that notion that like your practices are what you really believe. Yeah, which totally. I think is part of the reason why we get in the kind of mess that we're in totally. now is that there's such a disconnect between practices and beliefs yeah. where it becomes all about what you think. Well, what you think sometimes is kind of irrelevant maybe to what you really yep. believe. Totally. Yeah. Because what, yeah, because your practices. You might say you believe one thing, but do something else. And we do that all the time. I mean, sure. I know I do. Sure. I say, I know what the pizza is going to do to my body, mm-hmm. but I still eat the whole pizza. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yes. it's a little yes. like, and so I'm living, <laughs> I'm li- we live by narrative more than we live by, f- by facts. Wow. That's the so narrative true. is the pizza's good. And in this moment, it's doing something for me. Yeah. You know? Maybe that's not the best example, but I do think we live more by narrative than we do by facts. The facts matter. Yeah. But the narrative is the thing that, gosh, I mean, may, I feel like the narrative is the part of the belief that works its way into your life. That's right. Right? And I don't think we realize it. That's another study I'd like to read about the way... Um, the things, you know, the the stories you involve yourself mm-hmm. in, the way they affect your reality. And that's one thing about Scripture is you see these stories. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to argue a lot of times about the little individual Scriptures. Right. But, like, the real truth is actually oftentimes in the, in the story, in the narrative, in the way it happened, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Gosh. I don't know. That's so rich. Narrative over facts. I just, I mean, I just think that, that just rings so true. Mm. The story is is everything. Yeah. And the, I think the way that we experience that story is it, is so often more kind of an emotional reality. Mm-hmm. It's more about feeling than it is yeah. thinking. If we're honest, I think yeah. especially kind of Western white Protestant culture, we want to act like it's it, what we have is based on rational. Whatever. But I just think yeah. it rarely is. Like the yeah. stuff that we feel to be true, what we experience emotionally to be true, absolutely is what yeah. defines how we really see the world and, mm-hmm. and how we relate to the world yep. far more so than, than something that's totally. here. Well, I had a friend um, who worked for um, a cancer doctor. What do you call that? An oncologist? Or, mm. And she said <laughs> a lot of the cancer doctors smoke. You know? Oh, wow. They all, they all know it's not good. Yeah. Like, they know from the most uh, real, <laughs> real-time um, knowledge and, you know, but their narrative is different. <laughs> you know, the narrative they live by must be different. Um, but, yeah, I think we're all like that. Mm-hmm. And to the point where I wonder this, and this could get me in trouble, but I'm just putting it out as a what if. Mm-hmm. This could get me in a little bit of trouble, but I just put it out there as a what if. Now, what if you're an atheist and you can't subscribe to certain beliefs intellectually, but you hear the story of the gospel and it touches you and you see the beauty in that, you know, is maybe you still, maybe that's enough fellowship to see the beauty in it. Maybe that's enough agreement. I don't know. I don't know, but maybe there's some fellowship or some agreement in just seeing the beauty in it, even if you can't get there intellectually. Is maybe fellowship with the narrative is what matters. And I'm not saying that I don't believe it. Don't take this wrong. This isn't a roundabout way of me saying I don't believe the Bible or Scripture, but I just wonder what does it really mean? Is it to decide about a certain set of facts, or is it to see the beauty in something? And Because what if you... um 
I mean, there's a lot of what ifs here. What if you wanted to believe the Bible and you wished it were all true, but you couldn't quite get there in your mind? Does that mean you're out of the club? Or does that mean you're in the club? You know, in the right sense, you know, but you just haven't been able to work out the details. Yeah. You know? I wonder sometimes if like, and I don't, I don't know quite what I'm doing here either, but this is something I really think about a lot. Um, If there's a way that, I just wonder if, if, if sometimes we create problems for people that wouldn't have to be problems because you, if you, if you prioritize one kind of knowing above another, Mm -hmm. if you think that the head knowing, Mm -hmm. rationalistic, scientific knowing is a more important kind of knowing, it's a higher kind of knowing, which Mm -hmm. I feel like is in Western culture, largely what we do, not just church culture. Um, Because see, like now, and I, I try not to make fun of it too much for people for whom this is important, but like, I could care less about the kind of apologetics I was interested in when I was a teenager in yeah. terms of like how to defend the faith and like well if yeah. look they discovered Noah's Ark or yeah like, totally I could care less because at this point I just understand that those kind of uh, historical critical kind of questions are just not the ones that really most shape my life yeah yeah but if you give like a kind of privilege to science and reason above these other kinds of knowing yeah which is not to say like Hey, I really do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but even that, like, it sounds so old school or Pentecostal or whatever, mm-hmm. but I know that's more, it's my experience that leads me to believe that. My yeah. experience of God's presence on more kind of a visceral, emotional yep. level is why I think that. Totally. Not because, yep. well, you know, if if 12 men all held out their belief <laughs> all the way up until their death, I mean, surely one of them would have caved. Therefore, yeah. the resurrection must be true. What? Like, I don't, <laughs> no, I that know. doesn't make any sense to me at all. No, I know. <laughs> yep. No, totally. But at the end of the day, I'm with you. I do believe Jesus was resurrected, but it's not because of science or because of the facts. Mm-hmm. And I almost hate to say that. No, I'm with but you. But there's something to me that's more important and not that it's separate from the facts, but right. you know, there's something that's more um, important to me than the facts. Uh, yeah, but it, yeah, man, gosh, I don't even know if on some level, like I don't feel weird saying this. I think there are some things I choose to believe because I think it's a better story. Yeah. I think, like, I think the, the the story of death and resurrection is the story that most makes sense to me of the world and I think it's a more beautiful story and it's yeah. what I choose to believe yeah. and that doesn't, doesn't mean I don't really believe it Yeah, but I'm conscious of the fact that I choose to believe it precisely because I think it is beautiful Yeah, and that for me is is true yeah. um, you've been so generous with your time I know we've been we're I think pushing the hour mark now so I definitely want to touch but I would love to ask and I, not to take it in a different direction nor am, am I trying to end on uh, any kind of a of a negative note, but I'd be so curious because I don't know, Jim Mark, I just kind of feel like I don't know anybody who is in worship music who doesn't think of you as an influence, somebody they revere, admire and look to. And we had some of this conversation earlier today in terms of, and I love your spirit about everything because you're just, you're just not an angry guy. Like you're never throwing up your middle finger. You're not, I feel like you have a prophetic role and that you're able to bring a certain kind of critique and perspective from the margins, but it's never angry. You never want to burn anything down. It's not who you are. So yeah. you don't go around ranting and railing about this stuff. But I just think like it does seem like we're living in a moment where so much of worship culture in particular has become pretty monolithic. Yeah. There's a certain sameness to it. And especially like for people who are listening who are in that world, whether within local church spaces or kind of like beyond, 
I, I would just love if you just speak to whatever you want to say to people who are in those communities and trying to figure out what to what to do, especially in a time where so much of that feels like it's dominated by one particular sound or style. Like, what would you say to people who are in the trenches doing congregational yeah. worship or parachurch, like whatever, and just in terms of just perspective, counsel? Totally. Think. Well, so I have a friend named Adam Russell, and he says he says it this way, and I love this uh, illustration. You know, there, um, you know, on the highway, you have the you know, two to four lanes going one direction, two to four lanes going the other. In the middle, you have that strip. You know, I think sometimes they call it the median, you know. It's a little strip of land in the middle where they have grass or flowers that separates the highway. And I think that we tend to think that uh, our runway for worship is that strip. Yeah. But I think that the Lord would say, look across the road, there's a huge field. Mm. You know, and I don't know why we feel like we have to stay in that lane mm-hmm. when I actually think that what what we've been offered and even what the scripture offers in the Psalms, you know, is so much broader than what we um, allow and imagine for ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I just I would just say, I think it's important to ask the question, like, why can I sing this and not that? Mm-hmm. Why do we need to sing together? Why can't we dance together? Why can't we listen together? Mm-hmm. Or why can't we do all of it? You know, wh- why do you do what you do? You know, wh- what does it mean to sing the things that you're singing? You know, and what is the greater truth in what you're doing? You know, so I've thought of this for a while is that the, why do we feel like redemption has to come through the song? And maybe. You know, and I, I'm not saying that a songs with redemptive themes are bad, or we shouldn't. I mean, that's what the you know the worship is music is dominated with those themes, and I think they're good themes. But maybe the redemption doesn't come through the theme of the song. Maybe redemption doesn't come through the subject matter of the song. Maybe the redemption comes through the fellowship you and I have together around the song. Mm. You know, so like. I love sad songs. And one time I asked myself, why do I love sad songs? Because I feel connected to the person singing the sad song. Yeah. And there's something that happens to your brain when someone is self-deprecating in the right way. Mm-hmm. You know you know, one thing you can do to win a crowd over as a speaker is you can get up and say something that makes you look bad in the right way. All of a sudden, they're on your side. Sure. You know, And it's the same with music, too. Is sometimes a sad song opens up a window for you and the person to have... A fellowship, you know, and that's a huge part of uh, the Christian experience or the, what is it I'm saying? Not the Christian experience, but a, what we should desire as Christians is to have empathy with other people, you know, um, love God and love your neighbor, you know, and a lot of times empathy comes from um, allowing another person's story to come into your conversation, yeah. to hear another person's story. Or to tell your story and be heard, you know, and we think of this as not worship, mm-hmm. but it actually is very, very worshipful. What are the things that that God supremely values above all things? If the narrative of the gospel is true, then what he values above all things is human life and humanity and people and fellowship with those people. And so Worship is very, is not we've we have this idea at least in the charismatic culture that worship is they talk about it being um, 
oh, what do you call it? When something's up and down instead of side mm-hmm. to side. Yeah. Is worship vertical. is it's got to be vertical. Uh-huh. All worship must be vertical. And that's actually not true. Yeah. And you know, and this may sound cheesy, but I actually think that it's uh it's important that our symbol of our Christian faith is the cross. It's the up and down and the side to side. You know? And so the and so worship is not just about telling God things about himself that he already knows. You know, and the re- the only reason that's any good is because you say it in front of other people and they hear it, you know, and they are able to connect with you and God in that conversation. You know, I would say almost like one way to get my wife on my team is to stand up and say something good about her in front of other people. Yeah. And see, that's worship too. Mm-hmm. Say things good about God in front of other people. Say things good about people in front of God, you know? Like, there, there is a cyclical conversation happening in worship. It's not, um, it's not simply shouting uh, facts into space, yeah. you know? It's a conversation. And, um, and I think that um, it's a big conversation. That's what I love about it, is there's so much territory to explore. Mm. You know? And I realize... Um, worship is really, really close to people's hearts, and so um, some people are really afraid about what they will allow during worship, worshipful moments, you know. And that's why they argue about lyrics sometimes, like the argue about the reckless love song. You can't use the word reckless. I'm like, oh gosh, semantics, ladies and gentlemen. Right. We didn't invent the language. Actually, God, you know, allowed the, for language to evolve into what it is. But like, you know, language is fluid, you know, and you know, and I don't see any reason why we can't use that word, even if it, even and wasn't if, you there know, a time when we were divided between sloppy uh, no. and what was the alternative? <laughs> unforeseen. Uh, unforeseen, unforeseen, yeah. <laughs> you know, I always so. laugh whenever anybody sings unforeseen. Kiss, I know, I, have to say. I know. <laughs> so there's just so much more. Um, We've been given so much more leeway. Like, there's just so much more territory to explore than we allow ourselves to explore, mm-hmm. even from a st- strict biblical perspective. I mean, the Psalms are rich. There's a lot. They give us a lot of. Uh, they give us a lot of rope. Yes. You know, they give us a whole lot of rope. I mean, in the Psalms, if that's our, um, you know, model. I'm going to be thinking a lot about, I love your phrase about sort of the fellowship around a song because it makes sense of something. And I don't, I haven't thought about this hardly since, but like late last year when I was still in Tulsa, I went to a Dave Bazan show yep. and I don't remember what the song was. I know it was very dark because it's a Dave Bazan song. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely, it was definitely was one of those songs where there's not a lot of like, like there was no palpable kind of hope in it. But I remember there was this moment where I just realized that People were singing along, and I realized that there was a far deeper, more profound kind of connection between the humans in that room Mm -hmm. than I've experienced in many church settings, singing a superficial worship song that doesn't really mean anything in particular. I absolutely experienced something that I would identify more as the presence of God in that broken, open, vulnerable thing that was happening of people singing about their brokenness than I have with people singing... You know things that again are far more they're mm-hmm. vertical in all the right ways, but you know aren't really taken oh, anybody anywhere emotionally. Yep. What's the scripture when two or more touch and agree? Mm. 
Am I quoting that wrong? Am I getting no, two scriptures right. confused with one another? It has to do with like, um, you know, where two or more are gathered, you know, mm-hmm. two or more touch and agree. I'll, I'll have to revisit that. But there's something about like agreeing that, hey, this sucks. Yeah. We agree that this sucks. And there's, because we agree together, I see it, you see it, and there's pain here. Mm-hmm. And, but we're connecting. There's something very God happening. Even though the subject matter is not great, but we sort of connected one another. The subject matter—I did have this while you were talking, because you're got this—the table thing is such a big thing with you. The idea of the table. Thought about what is the like, the quintessential act of worship in the Christian church, mm. right? Is a meal. Yeah, that's right. right. And for for um, the ancient people before Jesus established. The meal. We're talking about the um, uh, what's the official term? Oh, the Lord's Supper, <laughs> the Lord's Communion, Supper, Eucharist, the Communion, whatever, Eucharist. It all yeah. Works. <laughs> um, you know, but before he established that, a meal was an intimate act of fellowship. Yeah. And so he turned fellowship, an intimate act of fellowship, into worship. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so worship, the quintessential. And so to me, that's all worship has got to come from that place, mm-hmm. right? It's like worship has got to come from a platform of fellowship. Mm-hmm. But even you know, to the point where Peter was like, I don't know if I can't go eat with the Gentiles. The Lord had to give him a dream yeah. to let him even walk through the door of a Gentile and have a meal because the meal was such an act of fellowship. Mm-hmm. you know. And so, I don't know, that just hit me. That just struck me. There's something that fellowship and worship are intimately connected. It's it's very profound, and I know, we, and we, uh, and I, I mean, I never, I'm any communion is better, no communion, but um, we so lose this with little separate cups and wafers. I mean, the idea because the experience of shared fellowship is yeah. at least half of what that means. If yeah. you don't have that, then you don't, you can't really get it because because and, and it, it unites something else we were talking about too. Because I just think like when we when we come to the table, to me, to me, this is kind of the, a way we could speak of the whole experience. Whenever we're suffering, over in pain, in crisis, whatever, we come to God looking for explanations. God gives us the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. We come looking for some kind of meaning. It's like, oh, you know, God, God gives us a meal. It's like, yep. I mean, the very um, Jesus, right after he's resurrected, when he appeals to disciples and he, you know, cooks breakfast for them on the beach. Oh man! Like there's Gosh. something like to this. Like, like it's, it's not like. Hey guys, well let me explain everything that really happened, yep. and here's what happened in three days in Sheol, and here's how I got out. Yep. You know, it's more like no, like come, come yeah. eat with me. Oh gosh, yes, and even like I've, you know, when I bring my deepest, darkest questions to the Lord, you know, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why, why, if God is good, then why do? Why is humanity? Um, why does humanity suffer? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know, once again, he doesn't give me an answer. He gives me a meal. Yeah. He offers his fellowship. In that, he offers us. He's like, I can't tell you why mm-hmm. people suffer, but you know what? I will suffer with you. Yes. Yes. Right. You know, and to me, that's one of the most beautiful aspects of. Um, the crucifixion that mm-hmm. I think we miss a lot. We get so caught up in the legal atonement right. stuff that uh, we miss the fact that, like, wait a second, mm-hmm. God is fellowshipping with our sufferings. Yes. yes. 
You know? Because the legal stuff is yeah. conceptual. That's exactly. concept. Exactly. Conceptual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Wow, man. There's so much we could explore. With- totally. And I'm saying again, thank you again yeah. for being so. Oh, no problem. This was fun. Well, I just, John Mark, I just want to thank you not only for the time today, but in general, I've thought this several times, even through this conversation. I know it's true for me, but I think it's true for so many. I just, I'm so grateful because I feel like the journey that you're on and your willingness to pioneer new territories is giving so many people permission to do that. And even if they don't know how to articulate what's going on, I just feel like it's, I mean, you know, we all go on our own journey because it's our own journey and what else can we do? Mm-hmm. But I just think in really tangible ways, it's making space for others and that a lot of people right now are able to experiment with these ideas and play and wrestle in ways that they need to precisely because yeah. your artistry is is giving them permission to do that. So oh, thank you man. for just for carving that trail. In the yeah, way well, thank you for saying that, man. That means a lot, for real. Because, you know, most days I'm just at home exploring my emotions <laughs> right on the guitar yes. i'm alone in a room trying to feel things yeah. trying to connect to the lord and so man that means the world to hear you say that well it's for true real. It's, it's it's such a gift and today's been such a gift so thank you for the time my friend this yeah really thank awesome. you man this has been so much fun for sure we'll do it yes, again definitely thank you for listening today for more go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on twitter and instagram to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash man and help us keep this podcast going. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast can help you come to find the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.